These guys really had to sprint around today. I had a full functional meltdown on my computer uh, and just barely, barely made it back to where I could even get to here, and you're going to see what all that means in a second. But I am really excited because we are back to demystifying the book of Revelation. Now, did I get this right? Praise God. So we did our, yeah, exactly. So we did our Christmas thing and we did the January thing. All of that has gone great. If you haven't got your APEST calls yet, you will. Almost everybody has been called at this point. So if you're wondering where yours is, feel free to call in. Please don't just let it sit and say, what happened? You know, we might have missed something somewhere, so may, let us know, all right? But the bottom line is, is here we are back to demystifying the book of Revelation. Let me ask you something. How many of you like mysteries? Whether it's a novel or a movie or a television show. How many of you like the mystery, right? I mean, you do realize that most television has gone to the mystery format. We call it like psych as a comedian show, but it's a whodunit, right? It's, you know, you're getting clues and you guess who it is as things unfold and jokes are told. Okay, and then you get to CSI procedurals, what they call them. And once again, these are mysteries, right? These are whodunit. Somebody dies, who did it, right? Okay, now, we're... We love unfolding mysteries, so we're going to take that theme and we're going to work that theme today. We're going to uncover a mystery as we get into these more opaque places in Revelation, that symbolic, poetic, that, that lots of layered meaning type language that shows up in chapter 12 and forward. We're actually at chapter 13 now. And we're going to do the little thing that we've been doing all along, which is we're just going to ask, what's God trying to communicate? When you first read it, you read it, you have no clue what that might mean. And then you just break it down. Okay, there's an image. What would that, what's God trying to communicate with that image? What's God trying to communicate with that image? This one, this one, this. And by the time you get done, it's not hard to figure out what the images are. And the amazing thing is, is when you get done, all of a sudden you go, it's so clear. Today, it'll not only be clear, but I want to make this clear. It'll be shocking. I mean, the, the revelation that you're going to get about what God said 2,000 years ago and the way that it's unfolded in a way that, that is very near to us is astounding. And I, like I say, it'll be shocking. I do want to give at the beginning here fair warning and also a thanksgiving. The fair warning is we're in a very tough place in Revelation right now. It's just a very difficult, there's no way to escape it. And I, I said that to Justine, I said, this is going to be a tough sermon. There's going to be some hard things in it and some difficult things, particularly towards the end. And I just said, it's going to be tough. And she said, that's okay. Equip the saints, right? Call us to learning. Call us to taking the moment and getting the point and understanding that sometimes these things cannot be and should not be handled lightly or with a deflection. Because the truth of the matter is, this is really important stuff. God took the time to write it down because we need it. So that's what we're going to be doing today. I'm really excited about it. Greg Thatcher, awesome, awesome Greg, who does worship and, and preaches and will be preaching again soon. He says he's got something. I'm really looking forward to that. So bottom line, Greg, would you lift up the church, the sermon in another church? Thanks. Lord Jesus, uh, when you spoke to your disciples, you, when something tough was given, you said, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear this. Lord, open our hearts today. Lord, may there be no distance between your heart and Kurt's heart to communicate your word, which you said would not pass away. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, uh, bless what happens here today to our hearts and to the week ahead. 
Lord, would you also bless Heritage Foursquare Church in Port Orchard Thank as they're going through some transitions. Bless Pastor Fred there. Bless the congregation. Grow them. Establish them in you further, Lord. Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love that when people have really deep connection and roots and places and bring that to us. I, I love that. Okay. I want to say something. When I, when I went back to Revelation, it's been two months out of it, right? Two months plus one more sermon. And so two months out of it, and I went back to it, I went, man, I don't remember any of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, literally, I had to watch like five sermons just to sort of get back the, the mentality and the heart and the spirit of it. So I'm going to do a very quick overview of what is going on in these chapters. It'll be important for today, but it's just important to sort of get us back on the track again, all right? So bear with me for a second while I do this. Chapter 1 is the opening, Jesus is God, okay? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, God's plan for salvation, for redemption of the whole world. And so what we see in the opening is John knows Jesus who was on the earth, that he laid his head upon his chest at the Last Supper. But bottom line is when he sees him now, he sees him in his glory as God. So that's chapter 1. And then chapter 2 is these letters that have been written to the seven churches. And they're very much true for the churches in 95 AD when John is writing this. It turns out, as we saw, they're also very much true for Lake Sam right now. Because literally the reorg that we've been doing, that we started before this, we saw the reorg right in those letters. God's saying, you know, you're doing this, but I have this against you. <laughs> and we could see that right there in the things that we've been talking about before. So that was... This is real stuff, and it's for today. It's not just a book written back then. We're going to see that even more powerfully today. But the state of the church, and then it goes into more properly what we would consider to be the book of Revelation, as John is caught up in the Spirit into a scene in heaven. And this scene is where God is gathering the whole of the heavenly host to tell them this is the end, this is what's going to happen. Now when he does that, one of the things that happens is I am really nervous right now. Uh, I need you to really check that we got the right uh, thing because this is, I'm just telling you this isn't the right one. So now I don't know what to do. Uh, I, I, I really need to put a pause on this for a second because I, I got a problem. Uh, could you just really quickly tell me what the very last slide of this, this thing is? If you can get to there. Is it grayed out and then there's a little bit at the very end? No? Oh, don't tell me this. <laughs> I'm going to have to revise. Oh, my gosh. It's going to be really hard. You, you can hang with me, right? You know, we can get through this, right? Okay? All right. Uh, if you could, while I'm talking, I'm going to be going really fast is the problem. Uh, if you could find the one that's in Dropbox... That's the one that should have been there. I just don't get it. Okay. And it's not grayed out at the end. Okay. Well, all right. Okay. All right. So seen in heaven who is worthy to break the seals. And here's what's going on. See the scroll right there? That scroll is the plan that God has next. And that scroll is sealed with seven seals. And what happens is nobody's found worthy to open those scrolls. So what happens is all of a sudden Jesus finally comes forward and it's the lamb that was slain who's worthy to break the seals. And we start breaking the seals. And six seals get broken of seven. And it, gets, it goes from bad to worse. Because by the time we hit the fifth seal, this is really important. When we hit the fifth seal, we hit the great tribulation. 
This is the time at which Christians are dying en masse. Martyrdom is happening in a phenomenal way, and things are going very, very badly. And by the time we hit the sixth seal, there's cosmic disturbance. Stars falling, people hiding in caves and rocks because of what's happening to creation because of this total breakdown that is taking place at the end. Now, at that moment in time, what happens is, when I say, yeah, at that moment in time, what happens is, I'm not clicking it, apparently. Okay, so then, can you help me? There you go. There's an interlude. So there's 144,000 Jewish people. There's an interlude. It stops. Six of seven have been done. It stops. There's 144,000 Jews that are sealed and for Christ. They're messianic. They're Christians. Okay? They, they're sealed for Christ. And then the next thing that happens is Christians are raptured out. Now, two things to keep in mind here. One is God seals the Jews first and then takes Christians out. And the reason why is because he will not leave the earth even for a second without a witness to Christ. Okay, a tangible witness, not just the creation and so on. But he will do that. Now, the one thing that we want to remember is, is this clues us into something about history that's very important. Starting with Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, we have an unfolding story of God with the Jewish people. Speaking to the world, but through the Jewish people. Okay? And then at the time of Christ, we have a break. And it's interesting, and the, and the break is Jesus comes, and then there's something else that happens, and then something else in the end. And what's interesting about that is, is if you look at the book of Daniel as we did, and you, you've heard of Daniel's 70 weeks, or 69 plus 1 weeks, and you can literally take the marker that he has, it starts here with, with, in Daniel at a certain day that we can identify in history, and it goes forward to literally the month that Jesus dies, 69 weeks. Just absolutely phenomenal. You can trust God. Clearly, that was written way before Christ was even born. Clearly, to the month, it's identified when he will die. In fact, it even gets a little better than that, but we'll leave it at that. Then what happens is Daniel's 70th week is still in play. And even in the prophecy, Daniel makes it clear there's 69 weeks that are consecutive, 69 weeks meaning 69 periods of seven years. So do the math, okay? And then at the end, what we've got is a final week, Daniel's 70th week, we call it, and that's a seven-year period of time. Now here's the key. Jewish history, for the whole world, but Jewish history, to the time of Christ, one generation after Christ, Israel is gone. Wiped out in 70 A.D. by the Romans. There is no more Israel. There's no more temple. There's no more Jewish history at that moment in time. Not to say it completely ended, but now it's the church age. And we've got the church age. But it's not replacement theology. That's just a fancy way of saying the church doesn't replace Israel. Israel's plan is still in place, still unfolding. So what you've got is a church age. And then when Christians are raptured out, that's the end of the church age. Pretty simple, right? And then what happens is it goes to a 70th week, which is this seven-year period of time, which is the seventh seal, which contains six, seven trumpets. Six, then one. Okay? So is that just breaking your brain? Okay? If you, you can, I mean, the point is you can lay this out real simply, and it really is very simple. And so what happens is, is that we get the six trumpets, and this is judgment. But remember, Christians are gone. This is judgment upon the world. And what basically is happening here is war to where a third of all mankind is being killed. 
and the war is so devastating that an antichrist rises up and brings peace. He stops the war and everybody gives over in order for him to stop the war. And we looked at this. And one of the things that we saw was there's an interlude in chapter 7. Again, only there's not the seventh trumpet yet. But there's an interlude in chapters 10 and 11 where we see the temple rebuilt. The temple that was destroyed even by the time that John was writing this in 95 AD. There was no Israel. There was no temple. But now all of a sudden God's saying there will be Israel again. And guess what? 1940, whatever it is, Israel again. And on the Temple Mount, as we looked at, you could say it goes right here. The temple does, so that has to come down. Or it's also possible it goes here or here. Meaning that you could build a temple on the Temple Mount site and still have a Muslim uh, holy place there because this war that destroyed a third of the world, people are sick of the war, and they're saying just give them the temple. And, and do, do, do remember, this is not... Like science fiction for us. If you were living in 1000 AD, you know, AD and you were talking about this stuff, there's no Israel. There's no, this is all just fantastical. But do remember that the headlines on the Sunday morning talk shows this morning, one of the primary topics, the number one topic of foreign policy today is what? Israel. Iran building a nuclear weapon. And they're going to use it potentially against Israel. And what the heck is Israel supposed to do? And if they bomb them, that's a bad thing. And if they don't bomb them, that's a potentially bad thing. Right? So it's like this devil's conundrum. Literally. See? And what happens if that happens? And you can see all of a sudden where, wow, you know, the world starts with, a, starts with some conflict there, goes to the whole world. Then all of a sudden we get to a place to where, we, you know, somebody comes along and says, look, just give them the temple and do this. And for three and a half years he lets them be in the temple doing sacrifices. And then the Antichrist says, enough of that. He, the two witnesses that have been protecting him are then killed. Uh, the Antichrist goes in and sets up worship for himself in the temple. But what happens after three and a half days? prefiguring Christ, the two witnesses rise again. I argued in a very important sermon that this is the moment where the Jews come to know Christ. Because they, I did Future Jewish Man, remember with Jeff, if you remember that. And this is the moment where the, where the Jewish people see the prefiguring, the, the, the pattern of Christ played out, and they go, oh my gosh, it really is Jesus. They believe, and now they're being persecuted like crazy, as we saw at the end of chapter 12. So we get to chapter 12. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Chapters 1 through 11, or you could pick it up at 4 through 11, but is history. It, there's not flowery language. You don't have dragons riding around on beasts and whores and all this kind of stuff. You don't have that symbolic language. You have it essentially laid out as history. It's just this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens and this is. And you can just go right through it and boom, there it is. And God is saying, you can see that most of this has already been fulfilled, so trust me, the rest of it's going to happen too. Right? That's 1 through 11. At chapter 12, God takes a whole other stance. And we see it because John is eating a book and he's having a vision. And there's this fantastical language all of a sudden. This, this symbolic language. These, you know, these things that are hard to understand and symbolic and poetic and how do we get them and what the language is doing and so on. And here's what God's doing. In 1 through 11, this is the scene on earth. But then in chapter 12, God peels back the curtain like Wizard of Oz. Only there's not some little man doing some little lovers. It's a whole nother reality that's behind the things that are happening in the world. 
And it's actually motivating the things that are happening in the, real, in, the, in the physical world. We don't see it. But God is trying to pull back the curtain and say, understand, this is what's going on behind the scenes. This is what's really happening. This is what it really means. And so he starts talking in this language. And again, we've been breaking down. And we've seen how the multiple fulfillments. Remember, we keep stacking chairs up. And we say, there's a fulfillment. And it really is a fulfillment. But then we get to another fulfillment that's even more so. And then another fulfillment that's even more so. And this language that God uses in here is astounding. If you want to just get caught back up, listen to the last sermon I did on this. And you'll see these multiple fulfillments and the way that God works them. It's incredible what God's doing here. But now we get to chapter 13, or more accurately, we're to the very end of chapter 12, and here's what it says. He stood on the sand of the sea. Now, let's just do our thing, right? This will only be fun if you participate. We're only going to be good detectives if you join in to the plot, okay? And you walk through it with me. So you you can't be bad. If you say something wrong and I don't pick your answer, you can't feel bad and not say anything the next time. We want you to participate, okay? All right. So... The sea. In the Bible, when the the Bible talks about the sea symbolically, what is it talking about every time? Yes, humanity. The sea of humanity. Okay, a whole bunch of people. Okay? So, now he, who's the he? That's the devil. The devil is standing, but where's he standing? He's standing on the sand of the sea. If the sea is humanity en masse, what would the sand maybe stand for? What's that? Close, but, but just what's the, if, if, if the sea is all of humanity, what might the sand represent? Let me propose to you the individuals, individual people. And what's happening is Satan is standing on the individuals in the sea of humanity. What's that mean? He has dominion over them. This is precisely what this book is about, is that Satan has dominion over humanity, and God has taken it back, (laughs) right? When we get to chapters 20 and 21, we see gloriously how he takes it back. But the bottom line is, is what we're seeing in here is, is that Satan has dominion, and because of that, he's doing certain things in the earth, chapter 13. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. What was sea again? So when you see something rising up out of the sea, what's it mean that it's coming out of the sea? It's a human. Perfect. It's not an angelic being. Satan's an angelic being. But this person, this beast, this antichrist, which we've already seen in 11 because he let him build the temple. But this antichrist that's coming out of the sea is a human being. It's an actual person. But he's referred to as a beast. Now, whenever scripture refers to persons as a beast, or when it's using that kind of language about somebody, it means something else to take a guess what it means. Close, very close, and very, very much it means that too, but just, just more. Well, yes, the beast is the Antichrist, and that's an actual person. But when he's talking about beast, that's a bigger word than just a person, as we're going to see in two seconds. It, it means an empire. In fact, isn't that exactly where it goes? And again, I I have benefit of having, it had seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns on its horns. Ten crowns. What's that sound like? Kings. Crowns. What are horns? That picture in the Bible of power and strength and fighting. See what I mean? By might. Okay? It has seven heads. What is that? Seven different manifestations 
of kingdoms. Now, just to make it clear that this is actually what it's talking about, I'm not just making it up, let's go to Revelation 17, where an angel comes to John and says, would you like me to explain all this fantastical language? And that's what he says. He says, this calls for mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. What's that mean? Seven, seven hills where, the, where she rules. What's that mean? Seven hills. Always Rome. Always Rome. Okay? So what's being said is, you see good detective work here. What's being said is, those seven heads, look, this, this empire, Rome. Think Rome. But then it says this, they also represent seven kings, meaning seven different kingdoms. And what he says is, <coughs> five kings have already fallen, the sixth now reigns, the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was, but is no longer, meaning a kingdom and a spirit, is the eighth king. So now watch, there's five kings that were in the past when John's writing, there's one that is, there's one that's to come, the seventh, <coughs> but then there's an eighth and final. Okay? So the scarlet beast is no longer the eighth king. He's like the other seven. See, he's in the same spirit of the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. Now, what are those five? Well, they are right here. This is, this is incontrovertible. This is what this means. This is what this means to the Jews. This is the, this is the major empires that have come about since the Jews have come about. Okay? And they are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the one that currently is Rome. Okay? All right. Now, the thing that we're really going to do detective work on here today, where the shocking revelation is going to come from, what's the seventh one? There's still an eighth to come after that, but what's the seventh one that's to come? All right? Well, if we're trying to do detective work, let's keep going on this passage. Written on each head were names that blasphemed God. Let me tell you what kings tend to do. Blaspheme God. Okay, even the kings of Israel and Judah did that, except for just a few in Judah. But kings, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, kings tend to be blasphemers. So that's nothing new about that. But when they say this, he's saying something larger than that. He's saying something bigger, and we're going to just put a pause button on that for two seconds because we're going to come right back to it, and I'll show you more deeply what I think that means, and we'll figure it out together. But let's go to the next verse and say this. The beast looked like a leopard. But it had feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion, and this is where most people go home. <laughs> See? Because I don't understand that kind of stuff. I don't understand a leopard and a bear and feet of a bear and a mouth of a tiger. And I, What the heck is that supposed to mean? Okay? Well, let me show you how really easy it is. Let's go to leopard. What's a leopard symbolize? What's it mean? What's a leopard? If you were kingdom as a leopard, what would it mean? What was the quality of that particular kingdom and its power and extension of power? What would, what would it mean? Quick, fast, right? So what we do is we go, John is living in the sixth one that now is, but we're looking forward to a seventh one, and let's look at history now and see to our age. Maybe the seventh one hasn't showed up yet, but let's just look and say, is there any army kingdom that you can remember that might be associated with being extraordinarily fast. Blitzkrieg. What does blitz mean? 
What does blitz mean? Lightning. What does Krieg mean? Lightning war. Blitzkrieg. This is a new thing in the world. Every other army before this marched. Maybe they had horses, but they marched and had horses. Nobody had this until now. And not just tanks, but air support. You understand? Blitzkrieg. The reason why they were able to take over Europe so quickly was nobody even had defenses for the way that this army was doing it. They weren't going en masse as a front line. They were going in like a leopard would. They were going in and strike, 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 and then they could move in. See? Blitzkrieg. Absolutely overwhelming force, devastatingly so, so fast. I mean, how fast did Europe fall? Europe. How fast did they fall? In a couple of years. Europe wasn't Europe anymore. This is just unbelievable, right? So, so we think of this and we say, well, that kind of has a leopard feel to it. Okay, let's take the next one. Feet of a bear. What might that mean? Well, yeah. Okay. But th that's what people say about it. And I'm actually going to go a different direction with it. You remember, it's talking about one kingdom that looks like a leopard, looks fast, but has the feet of a bear. If you were going to compare a bear's foot with a leopard's foot, what would be the thing that would stand out about it? Much bigger. <laughs> right? In other words, a bear is still very fast and powerful, but it's just got a big footprint. So here's what Europe looked like before when Germany was just Germany. And here's what it looked like four years later. A big solid, indentated, powerful footprint. The footprint of a bear. This next one ought to be really easy. The mouth of a lion. What do you think? What do you think? What? Mouth of a lion. Who? Who? What are we looking at right now? Who has the mouth of a lion? Yeah. The mouth of a lion. This is a roar. You know what? We look at these historical footage and we see this kind of short man who's not that, you know, and how in the heck, what the heck was going on here? How did this happen? The mouth of a lion. Look at the passion with which he speaks. Look at the, all of these kinds of things. But look at this. You know, you can't even find, I, I don't think you can, you can't even find a scene in China, which has a much bigger population than army. You can't even find a scene in China that looks like that. Look at the, this is a tiger. This is words that have deceived in a certain fashion. Do you think that when he sang, like a leopard, foot of a bear, mouth of a lion, that he might be talking about this? I don't think we've fully made the case yet, right? It's fully possible. And one thing to really note here, when God makes these kinds of predictions, he doesn't do horoscopic fortune codes, fortune cookies. He doesn't say something so short and so vague that it could fit anything. Nothing but Germany to date fits leopard, foot of a bear, mouth of a tiger. Nothing fits it. Nothing else does. Mouth of a lion, excuse me. Oh, by the way, you want to know what the name of the big tanks were that we were looking at right there? The first one was called the tiger. The next one was called the leopard. And the third one at the war's end was called the panther. That's just an interesting insight, okay? 
Some of it made by Porsche, by the way. Then I, now, let, but let's go a little deeper. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. This is Daniel now, and he's had a vision about this very same thing. And remember, this is about the eighth beast, not the seventh one. But I'm going to make a point here about the seventh one and why this also fulfills in the seventh one. Because remember, there's multiple fulfillments. There's a near term to get you to pay attention. And then there's an ultimate. Okay? So what happens is, the exact meaning of the fourth piece was different from all this. Exceedingly dreadful. Now listen to, the, listen to the thing here. Think about when this is being said. 500 years before Christ, metal is in, is, is in the world, but you're not making stuff out of metal that is big. And look at how it talks about it. It talks about teeth of iron, claws of bronze, metal claws, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down everything with its feet. Does that look like this? If you were trying to describe it, is this the kind of thing that you would say about it? You know, teeth, metal, everywhere, look at this. See this? It tramples down everything, everywhere. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you for absolutely certain that this is speaking about Germany, and yet I'm going to tell you with some certainty that this is speaking about Germany. Okay? I'm just not going to say it. It absolutely has to be. But what I'm going to say is at some point in time, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. You see it? Let's keep going here. We can make another argument here. I know that I don't have the final one, so if you guys can, if you guys can just make sure I've got five videos, and that you, I know how to do it. Make sure i got five videos so that when I get there, you can click on that fifth video for me, okay? Because I'm going to have a problem in here. I know I am. So, okay, and written on each head. You don't have to change anything. I'll, I'll work it in my head. Written on each head were names that blaspheme God. Do you remember when I said push the pause button on that? You remember how I told you that there were these kingdoms, and what's the seventh one? Let me show you something that bonds all of these kingdoms into one category so that the eighth is like the other seven and all seven are like the eighth. Let me show you how they're alike. Not just kingdoms. What did Egypt do relative to the Jews? If you want to blaspheme God, you can say something bad about God. But if you're really going to be a blasphemer of God, it's going to have a horizontal aspect. And what's the horizontal aspect going to be? Persecution of the Jews. Now watch this with these kingdoms. What is the thing that stands out about Egypt as relative to the Jews? Enslavement. What is it that stands out with Assyria? I'm not clicking anymore. What is it that stands out with Assyria? Assyria is the place, that when you click it, let me know. Assyria is the place where the ten northern tribes, remember when they come into the land, there's ten northern tribes and two southern tribes. Assyria is the one that wipes out all of what was then called Israel. Okay, what about Babylon here? What's Babylon all about? They took away the other two tribes. Now, miraculously, God restores them 70 years later, but still, when you look at kingdoms that are persecuting, Babylon stands right up there with them. How about this Medo-Persia? Nobody knows anything about that, right? Unless, of course, you were reading soap for the last three four weeks, for three or four months, <laughs> however long it was. But you know Esther. Now think about Esther. So you say, well, Esther, they weren't really persecuting the Jews. It was just Mordecai they didn't like, you know, or Haman they didn't like Mordecai, right? No. 
Do you remember at the end of the book, do you remember what Purim is about? Purim is about the Jews are being so persecuted that the king of Medo-Persia allows the Jews to kill the people that have been persecuting them. And tens of thousands of people are killed. This isn't just, you sold me something for too much money, so I'm going to kill you. This is that the Jews all over the land, Haman is a symptom. He's not the only manifestation of anti-Jewishness. What's happening is, is that the Jews then stand up in Esther, and that story is not just about the deliverance in that one moment. That's the thing that turned the tide. It's the story about the fact that the Jews were going to be wiped out off the face of the earth by this kingdom. And this is the saving of the whole of the Jewish people. So Medo-Persia. How about Greece? Go ahead and click it again. Greece. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, who at 167 BC, 167 years before Jesus, gets this, under, gets this thought that Jews are rebelling against him, which they are, <laughs> and he comes down and wipes them out. Totally destroys the temple. And guess what he does? He says in the temple he worships Zeus and sacrifices a pig. See what I mean? This is big stuff. This, that's blasphemy. <laughs> you want to know what it sounds like, what it looks like? That's it. <laughs> Killing his people, telling people in the temple to worship Zeus, and sacrificing a pig on the altar to defile it. That's blasphemy. And then we go to Rome. Rome is the one that in 70 AD totally destroys the nation of Israel. Now, if these six have something very much in common having to do with the Jewish people, what might there be <laughs> in the seventh one? Right? Two out of every three Jews in Europe die. 9.5 million down to 3.5 million in four years. And watch this, just in case I needed, to, just in case God needed to really put an accent on this. You remember what it says right there? His reign will be brief. You know what distinguishes the seventh one from all the others? Just a couple of years. All the others are hundreds of years. Put this in your mind so that we can get back to it in a second. That's really important. Let me tell you just as a foreshadow right now. The reason why God did this with Hitler is because it was a shot over the bow. It was a warning. For thousands of years, nobody's been persecuting the Jews, not, not like they used to with those big kingdoms. For thousands of years, it seems like everything has changed. It seems like things have moved on. It seems like those things don't happen anymore. And then in an instant, the world goes totally nuts. And two out of every three Jews in Europe, where most Jews live, die. This is a warning. This is a moment where God is saying, wake up. I told you there's a tough part about this, and I'm going to get deeper into it. But what do you think? You know what I mean? You could still argue it with something else, but I pretty much can guarantee you that at least until today's time, you cannot find a better explanation of these verses. And the problem is, these verses do very much seem to be completely fulfilled right here. So let's do a deeper mystery. Why? Why would this happen? Right? Remember? It's history and... We're, why would this take place? Let me show you something else about this whole thing with Germany. Do you know what these are right here? These are the German ghettos. 
Here's what a German ghetto is. At the very beginning, when they start to take over Poland and so on, they start establishing ghettos, and they start taking Germans out of, or Jews out of their homes, and they start putting them into encircled in, in, in areas. Now, why did they do that? Ostensibly, they did that because the Jews were insurrectionists. Why were they doing that? Well, because they were relocating them. <laughs> you know what I mean? A army that's relocating you, you tend to fight back at. But here's the key to the Jews. There's a whole lot of people that these people have overcome. France, there's all kinds of insurrectionists in France. There's all kinds of insurrectionists in Australia. Austria, excuse me. There's all kinds of French in the, what's the Slavics, as we call them now. There's all kinds in, in Hungary, in Poland. There's all kinds of insurrections everywhere else. You know what? There's not anywhere else any other ghettos. They don't go into France and take all the Frenchmen and round them up and put them into a couple of block area and create a ghetto. They don't do that with anybody but the Jews. And do you want to know another thing that happens that we don't commonly know, even though it happened in some of our lifetimes and just a, just a little ways away from all of our lifetimes? Here's something we don't know. Before the concentration camps were the mobile killing units. I, I was going to show some footage, and because I know some people are really sensitive and they get mad at me every time I show really brutal images, I just decided, you just need to trust me, but I watched, I watched an hour's worth of videos trying to find the right one of these mobile killing units, and what they would do is they would just take these Jews in these ghettos and they would walk them out to a place and they dug a huge ditch. In fact, they made the Jews usually dig the ditch. And they dug a huge ditch and then they lined them up in the ditch and they killed them all, and then more Jews piled in and then they killed more and then more Jews and they killed them all, and this is on tape. And these are not being killed because they're spies, because they're war, they're being killed because they're Jewish. Are they against the Germans? Yes. But that's not why they're being killed, because they're not doing this in France. They're not doing this in Austria. They're not doing this in other places. There's still insurrections there, but you don't have anything like this anywhere else. This is where the majority of Jewish people live, right in that band, right there. And there were these mobile killing units going out. And then you know why they quit doing the mobile killing units? With all love and deference. I'm German, okay? Good German engineering. It was taking so much time to waste a bullet on a person. And to big those, dig those big holes, they just couldn't do it efficiently enough. And so they built concentration camps. And they started shipping people in. Now, let's just do a little logic here, okay? If these are rail lines from all of Europe. These are the rail lines that fed just one of these. I'll switch, admittedly the biggest one. But I want you to see something. See all these rail lines right here? You do realize what's happening at the very same time that the concentration camps are being built, right? You do realize that we're invading here, that there's resistance here, that we're invading here, that we're invading here, that the Russians are invading here. You do realize that the, suddenly the Germans are being faced with war on all sides. And what they're doing is, now think about this for a second. What they're doing is trains that need to be ferrying personnel and armaments and so on to the various fronts are being used instead to put people into. This is actual footage now. To put people in these trains. And do understand something. These people do not know that they're going to their death, do they? They've been doing the ghettos, and they're thinking, well, they're going to take us to these concentration camps. And this is going to be a safer place for us than those killing fields. But do you understand the lunacy of a war machine taking the amount of resources 
that it took to house, to transport, to get these people on trains to this, these concentration camps? You know, why didn't they just say, you know what, we'll, we'll get to the killing of the Jews later. Let's win the war because we're now in danger of losing it. And we're using all of this money and resource. Now, one thing you do need to know is they were charging the Jews for their one-way ticket to these concentration camps. So they were trying to pay for it that way. But it still is a, a, a shift of resources from war effort to simply killing. An enormous manpower and everything else. And you could say something. Well, the reason why they were doing this is because Hitler came to power by creating an enemy. One of the ways that you build a good team, one of the ways that you build a group to be against another group is create an enemy. Hitler created an enemy in the Jews, right? But do understand, by the time they were in the war here, by the time they got the concentration camps, they weren't advertising to anybody, least of all their own people, that what they were doing to the Jews. This was not common knowledge. They were hiding it from the world, from the Jewish people. They weren't using concentration camps to motivate people because they knew it would demotivate them. This was nuts. What reason is there? What argument is there? What's the rationale? Find it for me, would you please? Because I can't find any in the natural world. We think that we are rational beings and that the reason why kingdoms do what they do and people do what they do is because of rational decisions. And we understand that we're not all as rational as we think. In fact, if you really understand human nature, you understand we're not rational nearly as much as we like to think. But the truth of the matter is, is we think that the reason why people things happen is because people make rational, reasonable decisions. And you remember what's happening in chapter 12 forward in Revelation. God is pulling back the curtain and he's saying, there's something else going on. Which is said right here in chapter 13. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. This is the next words. Why are these, not just the Germans, but why are these empires doing insane things because they're deceived. We know about Hitler's with the cults and so on. We get all that, right? But the bottom line is they're going insane. It's, it's nuts because it's deception. It seems reasonable to them even though it has no reason in it. Now you gotta, you got to hang with me here because this is right where the PowerPoints now diverge, okay? So I just got to make sure I get it in order. There's two reasons why Satan's doing this. We got to ask the question, if we're going to be good detectives, we got to ask why is Satan doing this? We now understand that mankind is doing it because they're being motivated by Satan. But why is Satan doing this? Tell me. Why is Satan trying to kill the Jews? Before Jesus ever showed up, why is he trying to kill the Jews? Kill the Savior. At the very garden, right when Eve is deceived and Adam follows, right? What happens is God says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. By the way, sound, turn the sound down. I think you, I'm going to have sound in this one video because of the, what's going on here, okay? I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head... Satan stepping on Jesus, or uh, Jesus stepping on Satan, 
you're going to bruise his heel, the cross. But right here, by just understanding what God has done through the promises through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob found in Genesis, Satan knows that the Messiah, God's plan, is to come through the Jewish people. So if you kill all the Jewish people, how can God's plan survive? You want to know the real reason for the insanity behind this? Before Christ, that's it right there. But what about after Christ? Remember, we saw in chapter 12 where the dragon sat ready to devour the woman as she gave birth to the child, Jesus. Failed Bethlehem. Remember, all those babies killed, but he failed. Jesus is caught up to heaven. Why after is he still trying to kill the Jews? Because God isn't done with him yet. And he knows it. Because there's still a plan to come with him. And he's still trying to wipe him out. And not only is he trying to wipe him out, but do understand, our own passage talks about it. Here's what he's really trying to accomplish. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded and beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and did what? Gave allegiance to the beast. And then what did they do? They worshiped the dragon. The other way that Satan gets off, the other way that Satan does it, remember what he said in the garden? I'm like God, worship me. He's trying to usurp God. He's trying to bring worship to himself. If he can kill all the Jewish people, if he can kill all of God's people, Christians and Jews, well, then the whole world has gone after him. And that wins, right? Bookmark that because that becomes really important in one second. They worship the dragon for giving the beast such power. They worship the beast. Who is as great as the beast? Who's able to fight against him? I'm going to need a Bible too, okay? And would you open it up to this, this stuff here? Now remember, Revelation 17, the scarlet beast that was and is no longer is the eighth king. He's like the other seven. Remember, we've been talking about these beasts, right? I mean, we've been talking about these kingdoms. And what's being said is we've discovered the seventh one and so on. And now we're to a critical point. I get that Germany is not the fulfillment of the eighth one, but here's what Germany is a shot over the bow, a warning. Here's what we think. Germany could never happen again. It could never happen. The world went crazy. Okay, I got it. The world went crazy. But that could never happen. We're too sophisticated. We're too mature. Right? You see where I get to? I, I got to go back. Okay. I, I know where I am now. I know which version of this PowerPoint I've got. The scarlet beast that wasn't as long as the eighth king, he's like the other seven. Um, here, just a second. L let, me, let me just, I can, I can cut to the chase. The next thing that he does is he comes out of the gate and he starts talking about, well, this could, let me just go there. This could never happen again. This, we're too sophisticated for this to happen. Remember, I told you it's a really difficult video. There are some bodies in this at the very beginning. I edited out all the rest of the bodies, so please no emails, okay? 
but I edited out all the rest of the really difficult things. But this, I just, this, this, this video is powerful to me because in a second here, you're going to see teeth. It's not the bodies, but I, I'm trying to get to some place with us here emotionally and intellectually. These are the instruments that pull out the gold teeth and that clip the things off of. You know what that is? Those are glasses. And it's not just a few glasses. It's a mountain of glasses. These are clothes. Can I just say something? Okay, so you got insurrectionists and you're killing the people that are fighting against you. But exactly what was it that that little child was doing that was going to threaten the great bear Germany? This is Auschwitz, and this is the actual stuff that they found there when they got there. This is footage right from when they got there. Look, shoes, but look at this. It's not just a few shoes. <laughs> okay. This could never happen again. Actually, eighth beast. It not, only, it not only is possible, it's certain. Then the beast was allowed to speak blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. Remember, the two witnesses are killed, and now he's got his three and a half years where he's doing rampantly. Okay? And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Now let me do something right here because this is important. Is that Christians? No, we're talking about Jewish people. The ones that came when the witnesses were raised up again and now he's killing all the Jews that have come to belief in Christ. God's holy people. It's interesting in that phrasing actually. There's a way that God typically refers to Jews and a way that he typically refers to Christians. This particular phrasing is a melding of the two. God's people, holy people. I could, I could develop that further, but let me just keep going. The beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. He was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. He's finally succeeded, and he's killing every single Jew. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of the life before the world was made. Now, right there, we start to get some hope, because this is a plan that God has had since the very beginning. Now, is it a fun plan? You could even argue, is it a good plan? You better not argue that. But you could even say, why in the world would God have all of these people being killed? Give me an answer for that. Why would God do that? Good detectives here. Yes, and why is God allowing his saints to die in the great tribulation as Christians and as the Jews here totally? Why is he allowing his people to die like this? Yes, what's the witness though? Excellent. Yes. I, I just, let me just watch this. Because he's about to kill all those people that weren't in the book of life. And if he did that without having his own die, it wouldn't seem fair.
Do you understand it? It wouldn't seem right. He's allowing his own saints to die so that when he judges the world that has persecuted the Christians, it's just. It makes sense. He is going to judge those who are against him. But if all they ever did was not like him, not agree to serve him, if the world that doesn't know Christ right now, if God were to end it right now and he were to send all those people to hell, they'd have a lot of appeal court, appeals in the court, right? What did I do so bad? What did I do so wrong that I should end up in hell? Here's what the truth is about the world. God is restraining the evil that those who do not worship him will fall into. And when he stops restraining and they fall into it, now when God makes a judgment and he says, those on my left go into damnation, it is just and no one, including the ones going, don't see it. It's right. It's righteous. The ones that survive in Christ are the ones that were killed. Do you see it? God is laying out the case so that he can never be anything but seen to be as completely just in all that he's done. In every way that he's done. Because do remember, the difference between one who ends up in hell and one's that end up in heaven is your choice. God who has been reaching out to you over and over and over and over and over and over, you will be those who partook in the persecution of his own, and you will be the ones that will realize the degree to which you made that choice. And they don't argue with Christ in where they belong. And why? Do you see it? But now let me take you to the last place. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone who is destined to die by the sword or tank or anything else, will die. This is not the victory moment. That comes later. I told you this was a tough sermon at some fundamental level, but listen to what it means. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. If you're a Jewish person and you're headed into this, it's going to be really important that you know that this was ordained by God. But we've been talking about Jewish people here. Can I take it to the Gentile world, to where most of us live? Here's what we do. I just lost my house. God's not being fair. I just lost my job. God's not really very good. I just lost something that was incredibly important to me. And I don't know if I can worship God anymore. Until we get to where in the middle of the deepest persecution, we know that God is working all things together for good. Until we get to that place, we will be the ones who will fall. We will be the ones who will give up on God. Because after all, how could a good God ever let all these Christians die and all these people and all these terrible things happen? You want to know the good thing that God is doing when we struggle right now? He's equipping you. 
because I wanted to say something. I want to come back to this. Remember how I said Germany, I think, was a shot across the bow? If the end comes in another 500 years, how effective was that shot across the bow? Not very, because it was an awful long time ago. But what happens if the end is much sooner than we might think, because it can come much more quickly than we, looking at the world, could think? What happens if Iran drops a bomb? What happens if Israel just goes in and starts bombing them? Do you know how quickly our world can change? Thinking about next year. <laughs> We're talking about Israel's going to strike this summer. What happens when they do that? Now, maybe nothing. Hopefully, God will continue to restrain. Hopefully, everybody in here will die without having to go through all of this. But if you do go through all of this, thank God that God put us through some tough times so that we'd learn that God is good even in the middle of really tough times. Because when we know that, we persevere. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm begging you, and I don't need to beg because it's a thanksgiving. I'm thanking you that every single person in this place, every single person in this place, We'll be one who perseveres because you have equipped us. You said if it were possible, they would be deceived. But you're equipping us so that it is not possible. I'm asking you that nobody here lives a facile, superficial Christian life that does not survive persecution. I'm asking you that this body of saints gets to rejoice in heaven together. Because we have all withstood no matter what is to come. And together we can hug each other's necks and love on each other because we stood in the day of trial. And we're found in him. God, thank you. Thank you that what you have for the people in this church is victory a hard sermon, but getting to an important truth that we might get to the ultimate good. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, thank you that you are going to bring us home by your strong right arm, by your power, by your might. Thank you that you teach us through persecution to cast our cares on you, to come to know the God who is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to your purpose. Thank you, God, that you hold us in the palm of your hand. Thank you, God. We just come before you right now and say, God, bring me home. Get me there. No matter what it takes, teach me. No matter what I need, equip me. No matter what it is, strengthen me. In Jesus' holy and precious name reach before you, would you, and pick your communion cups up, two cups. In the lower is the bread. God, we lift up this cup in which is our bodies, our lives, in which is the choices that we have made. God, right now, just as a quick repentance. Every time we've ever gotten mad at you in the middle of something that was big and everything else, we repent of that. 
We will look for the good that you are doing in every circumstance from now on. We will never forget that you are always doing that because you are a God who is good to your promises. You promised that a seventh would come and it came and we can see that. We know that an eighth is coming. We know that things are going to happen in Jesus' holy and precious name, God. We are the saints that you have equipped to persevere. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, having broken our lives before and put that finger down in there and break it, God, in Jesus Christ, we are made whole. Jesus is the word. The word is preached, and the word goes in and finds a home in us that strengthens us in time of need. And so we take Jesus Christ in in order to be made whole in him. And now in Jesus' magnificent name, by the plan and purposes of God the Father, by the instrumentation of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the life that you have for us is in this cup. It is the life of the new life. We take this cup together that we might enter into the fullness of your life. Ushers, could you come forward? I want to say a joke because I want to break this sort of heaviness. <laughs> Man, I hope, I hope this goes to a deep place and I hope this plant seed that grows up into something real in your life. At this moment in time, you have an opportunity to respond obediently unto the King of kings and the Lord of lords, unto the God who has something going on behind the curtains. And by giving, by obeying, by following truly, we enter into that kingdom. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we thank you that though we be in this world, we are not of it. And so even now in this offering, we do not act as the world would have us act in fear. We act in hope. We act giving into your kingdom, that your kingdom might come, that your kingdom might be glorified, that your kingdom might be manifest in fullness that you intend. You've given us the choice to make that happen. God, we give accordingly.